everybody, this is episode 151 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited about this episode today where we're going to get really practical and talk about race planning for the upcoming Chicago and Toronto marathons. Of course, Chicago is this coming weekend on the 13th, and then Toronto is a couple weekends away on the 20th, both course profiles set up very similarly so it's easy to talk about them together and how you might structure a plan so we'll get to that discussion in a bit and we'll also talk about the nuances of each race but first of that first of all of course we've got some current events to get to and the first is one that's really near and dear to my heart and I wanted to point you to another interview to listen to If you head over to the Clean Sport Collective podcast, of which I am a co-host, we just posted episode number 14 on Monday, and that episode has the reaction of Adam and Kara Goucher to the Alberto Salazar and Dr. Brown doping sanctions that were handed out last week on September 30th. Of course, they received four-year bans for doping violations, and, and Kara and Adam talk about how this has affected them for the last six years that they've been a part of the investigation from the time they came forward to USADA to now with the actual sanctions coming forward. And you'll you'll hear in the interview that it's been a really hard and stressful road that has not only caused a lot of personal and family trauma, but also ultimately cost Kara money as she was blackballed by races and race directors for coming forward when she did publicly in 2015 after privately coming forward to USADA in 2013. So in that interview, we discuss all of it from their reactions to the news and to the sanctions, as well as to what that journey has looked like and including how they would react or respond to varying types of reactions that are out there, including those who still question Kara's motives and question whether she was clean as an athlete herself. And as someone who has spent time with the two of them, I can tell you if you if you talk to Kara personally or Adam personally, who's really passionate about this, then it doesn't take you very long to believe them, to believe that they're telling the truth, and to want to support the fight, the fight for clean sport, the fight for telling the truth, the fight for doing the right thing, for truly doing the right thing. And so I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast to get the behind-the-scenes story on that. And then also as a part of that, we talk about what you can do as a fan to support the fight and sometimes that means making hard choices with how we spend our dollars but I think it's an important part of the equation because we as consumers can make a difference if we're willing so we talk about all of that in the interview and so I would highly recommend you checking out the Clean Sport Collective podcast episode 14 and do let me know what you think. You can always send me an email, give me feedback, ask questions at chris at roguerunning.com. But I'm really proud of that interview and I'm proud to be a part of it. Of course, Karen and Adam are the ones that, that deserve all the credit, especially for what they've gone through for this case to fight the good fight. And I don't think that any of us can truly imagine how hard it has been on them over the last six years, but... That interview does give you a little picture, a little window into it, and I think helps us all better understand what that has been like and and also how important it is to be a part of it. So again, please listen. Let me know what you think. You can, of course, find that one on iTunes if you search Clean Sport Collective or Pretty much anywhere podcasts are distributed, you can find that. I'll also include a direct link in the show notes to this episode. So, check it out. Second thing I wanted to talk about today 
and I'll do a full recap of the world champs in a different episode. But one of the things I did want to talk about is, a, is just some reactions from the events of this past weekend. For those that were following along, just to give you a quick update, JoJo did end up beating me by by the same two-point lead she had halfway through the events. We ended up going back and forth a little bit through the weekend, but over the final six events, we we tied, but she had that two-point lead from the, the early six events, which ended up carrying the day, and so she can thank Emma Coburn for that silver. And I am left in second again, wondering why in the world I would have doubted Emma Coburn. But JoJo and I will get together to recap all of that in a different episode. I did want to talk about one thing, though, which is some skepticism raised over some of the performances on the weekend, particularly of Sifan Hassan's performance in the 1500, where she basically took over the race from three laps to go and then just utterly dominated it, running from the front, destroying everybody to run a 351 to get the gold medal. Shelby Houlihan incidentally ended up fourth place just off the medal stand in an American record time and a three second PR for her. So devastating for her to run the way she did run so well and yet not make the podium and then now have to wonder at some point, will she potentially be awarded some sort of medal upgrade depending on what happens with those top three athletes? Obviously, there's been a cloud of suspicion over Sifan Hassan because of her affiliations with Alberto Salazar. And that suspicion was only raised further by her performance in the 1500, as well as, of course, her performance in the 10K, finishing that race in a 359. This one, she won in 351 for the sixth fastest time ever by a 1500-meter athlete. And she did it from the front by herself in a championship final without pacers. So naturally, there's been a lot of chatter, a lot of people questioning that result when you look at especially how it compares to the other top times of all time of the five women that had faster times in the all-time list. I think three of them came from a Chinese state-sponsored doping program that has been confirmed. And then one of them came from Jinzebi Dababa, who has been associated with Coach Jama Auden, who was found with a hotel room full of EPO. So naturally, when an athlete has a performance that is so outsized and compares to other questionable athletes, then that obviously is going to raise eyebrows, especially in the way she did it. And then you also combine that with the fact that she was associated with a coach who is now serving a four-year ban. It's natural that people will ask questions. And and I think we all should ask questions. And in fact, I think that one of the number one indicators of somebody who might be doing things the wrong way is outside perform outsized or out of this world extraordinary performances to me that's one indicator and in this case to me it would be an, an indicator that we have to talk about but the question that naturally comes up is if you're questioning Hassan and her performance then you have to question anybody who has performances that might appear to be out of this world which I think is a fair point and I think that oftentimes we don't necessarily give fair consideration on outsized performances to all athletes who have them and so I want to talk a little bit about that point which is just to kind of to play the counterpoint here Sarah Hall a week after winning, not winning, a week after running a 222 at the Berlin Marathon in a massive four-minute PR, turns around a week later and finishes first in the U.S. 10-mile championships at the Twin Cities Marathon this past Sunday. 
that result coming again one week after a massive marathon PR would, in my mind, if somebody did that, would automatically raise eyebrows. If you told me somebody did that, it would automatically raise eyebrows regardless of who that athlete was. Now, of course, I'm a fan of Sarah Hall's. I wouldn't normally think of of Sarah Hall as somebody who could potentially be a drug cheat, and I'm not saying she is. But I am saying she had an outsized performance in kind of going back to back Berlin Marathon, 10 mile race. And therefore, because of that outside outsized performance, she deserves the same questions that you might give Sifan Hassan. How is this possible? Could this indicate that you might be doing something illegally? And again, I'm not saying Sarah Hall is, but... My point is that as a sport, we have to question all performances that seem to be out of this world because it is, to me, one of the best indicators for who might be cheating and who might not be. And those that have those outsized performances, those out-of-this-world results, should get those questions. And I would hope that the clean athletes would welcome those questions because they're the ones that are advocates. And in general, I think how people respond to those questions is also a potential indicator. But it's important as fans, as leaders in the sport, whoever those people might be, if you're going to question one result that looks crazy, you have to question all the results that look, look, that look crazy. And I think that's a healthy thing. And those athletes that are clean, they get questions, should welcome it, and then just step right into the questions and be open books. And and often I think you see that, that that's true. I don't know that Sarah has been questioned in that way, but the point is it naturally raises the questions. And then the question becomes, if you're a fan, what do you do with it? What if you see a result that seems too good to be true? How do you process that? And to me, again, the reminder here is that as fans, we get to decide who we root for. We get to decide who we invest our energy into. We get to decide who we follow on social media, who we support. And while we cannot be the judge and jury, we can't know if Sifan Hassan is dirty. We can't know if Sarah Hall is dirty. We can't know those things. And it's not our job to know. But it is our job to be discerning fans and to invest and support those athletes that we personally believe in. And that may change from fan to fan. So then the question comes, okay, well, how do I know? If I see something that seems to you to be true, then what else should I look at? And as a fan who is not just a track nerd, but who is also an anti-doping nerd and or who follows very closely doping cases across all sports because I want to be educated on the topic and who now has a whole you know podcast with Kara Goucher and Shanna Burnett on this topic. As a fan, there are other things that I look at. So outsized, outsized out-of-this-world performances is one thing. What else? And there's the list is probably a little bit longer than this, but there's really four key areas that I look for. One is performances that are too good to be true. To me, that is always a red flag and it should be a red flag. Does it mean someone's doping? No, not necessarily, but it should mean that the questions should come and the scrutiny should come because we owe it to ourselves to make sure that whenever something happens that does seem to defy logic, that we can confirm or at least give the right due diligence to decide whether or not it's real. So one, those performances. Two for me would be who they're associated with. So if an athlete has out of this world performances and they're associated with a coach, an agent, or other athletes that might train in their group that have had either questionable performances or other doping positives or, or who have been affiliated with other doping cases, then again, that's where you have to raise another red flag in the case of Sifan Hassan 
Unfortunately for her, that's true, with her coach having just received that doping ban. In the case of Sarah Hall, she has Ryan Hall as her coach. Ryan Hall has never been affiliated with a doping case, and from me following him through the years, has always responded favorably when asked those questions. So there is a difference there. The third thing I look for is the progression of the athlete. So how have they progressed through their career and what is the length of their career? Because you want to look for and identify any sudden jumps in performance. So if you go suddenly to running much faster times or suddenly to performing at a higher level at championship meets, then that's an area where you raise questions because typically what you see with an athlete who's doing it the right way is that you have a gradual and slow progression. And while that progression doesn't always reveal itself in results, you can perhaps see it in their progression as an athlete through the training that they're doing or at least have some perspective on given the timing of their races, does it make sense to see their performances as they play out? So that's something else to look at. If you look at Sifan Hassan, you can see that in 2017, right after she had joined Salazar's group, she ended up getting bronze in the 5,000, and she was fifth in the 1,500 meters. And here she is two years later, getting a gold not only in the 15 where she finished fifth just two years ago but also getting gold in the 10k which is a relatively new event for her and to do both of those things together is unprecedented nobody's ever done that before in the history of the world championships so that kind of sudden progression over the course of two years naturally raises questions then you look at sarah hall and you say well, is there anything there that would be suspicious? She did have suddenly a four-minute PR in the marathon. And that, to me, would naturally raise eyebrows. Now, you could potentially explain that away by talking about how maybe she's never really had the opportunity up until this point to run the 222 for a variety of reasons before this. But to see that four-minute jump suddenly does naturally I think raise some eyebrows so that's number three the progression of performances and then the fourth thing I typically look at is how do they respond to questions about doping one thing I've found is that those that that do end up getting convictions down the road end up having two hallmarks at least in how they respond to doping questions one is that they get angry they get mad they get frustrated they kind of lash out and then the second thing they do is often point to the fact that they don't have positive tests as proof and for those that follow doping know you know that oftentimes we're catching athletes not because of positive tests but rather because of because of other investigative work and if you look at the Lance Armstrong case he was famous for constantly saying that he would say I've never tested positive and and yet he would never actually say I've never taken performance enhancing drugs he would just simply say I've never tested positive and we all know clean tests don't necessarily mean you're innocent it just means you potentially haven't been caught yet and so Sifan Hassan, in her interviews, did those two things. She got angry, and then she talked about how much she's tested. So that would raise some flags there. And I don't know yet that Sarah Hall has been asked that question, so I'd be kind of curious to see if it does come up, given given the fact that she had those two performances back-to-back over a week's time and my my gut tells me that you could probably believe in Sarah Hall and I have I have believed her to this point in her career so I I will continue to do so. I do worry about what they're doing over there because I think 
having those races too close together and then doing New York here in I think three weeks time all of those races back to back to back is a recipe for injury or for plateauing in a way that I think could affect her performances in February I hope I hope for her sake that I'm wrong that she and Ryan know exactly what she's doing but what they're doing at the moment seems to defy the normal rules of training and racing and it's hard to believe that at some point she won't pay the piper for for the for this but we shall see i hope again that i'm wrong so those are some things you look for again it's one are there out of this world performances two who are they associated with three what's been the progression of the athlete and do you see the sudden jumps in performance and four how do they respond to the questions because typically the dopers get angry and and or defer to their posit to their lack of positive tests while the clean athlete will welcome the questions step into it and then just be very open and honest about what they do and don't do and and that's just a very different different thing so so there you go that's my take again as i've said before while i don't know if sifan hassan is a dirty athlete i can't know that's not my job i can say as a fan i don't support her i don't believe and therefore i'm not going to invest my energy in her as an athlete while i will invest it in other places and that's my choice that's my right as a fan it's hard for me to get excited about her result but I understand if there are others that view it differently and do want to invest. And it's your right as a fan to do that, just like it's my right as a fan to not be. So there you go. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight. But I do think it's important when we see these out-of-these-world performances that, that we question them, no, question them no matter who does it. We must be equal in our questioning of out of this world results because that's truly the only way to shine the spotlight on those those that are cheating all right so i'll get off my soapbox there rant over but again look forward to our full recap of the world champs coming up shortly now for this episode again we're going to talk about chicago marathon coming up this week on the 13th and then the Toronto Marathon coming up on the 20th. Both of these courses are flat, so they can be as appro- approached with the same strategy. So that's part of the reason why I want to talk about these things, these two together. We've got a bunch of rogues going up to Chicago. And then, of course, our dedicated fall race for Rogue is Toronto this time around. And I'll be up there racing the half myself and we'll have bunch of affiliated rogue activities in toronto so if you happen to be racing toronto and want to hook up on any of those activities then shoot me an email chris at roguerunning.com and i'll see if we can fit you into our pre-race talk and potentially to our post-race party which i'm excited about so these are both flat courses toronto probably has a little bit more undulation than chicago but both are, are are flat and therefore you can approach them in a similar way. So we'll talk about them together in terms of strategy. And then I'll talk about some of the nuances of each of these races individually as well towards the end. And then just give you some general tips as you approach these fall races and how to make sure that you bring your A game. Before we dive too far, too far in though i do want to call out a couple of other podcast episodes to check out if you haven't already episode number five talks about marathon race planning and i think gives you a really good perspective on all the details that go into marathon weekend and how to make sure that you're dialed in on all of those details including race strategy then there's episode number 46 where we talk about race strategy from the 5k to the marathon and everything in between including 10k and half marathon so that for those who might be racing other distances you can check out episode 46 and and get tips on whatever race distance you might be attacking and then for those that are doing new york which isn't too far away as well 
then I would rec- recommend episode 98 where we talk about New York race strategy. And that one in particular is more nuanced because of the more undulating terrain in that course. So that requires its own dedicated discussion. So I would recommend you go check out episode 98 on that. But let's talk Chicago and Toronto. Again, relatively flat courses, which to me means that you can employ a a relatively straightforward race strategy. And so we'll talk about that and then we'll talk about how you might tweak that depending on what your specific goals might be for the day. But on a flat course, then I typically recommend just breaking the race down into three chunks, at least from a pace strategy standpoint. So three basic chunks. If you have an undulating course or a course that's that's more nuanced or complicated, then you might need more than three chunks. But for a flat course, three chunks is perfect and I wouldn't want you to overcomplicate it beyond that. So what are the three chunks? Chunk number one, which would encompass miles one to three or one to four, depending on how long you want to take to get down to your target rate, target pace, and depending on exactly how far behind marathon goal pace you start. We'll talk about those nuances in a second. But this first chunk, miles one through three or miles one through four, is what I like to call the warm-up. For both of these races, Toronto and Chicago, they have a corral system, and I would encourage you to get lined up in those corrals early because the chaos around the start in both cases is pretty nuts, and you don't want to end up having to jump into a slower corral. You want to get in your corral, and so you're going to have to go, and I recommend getting into the corral with at least 20 minutes to spare before your wave starts or your corral starts. I think the the shutoff, the closing time for the corrals in both races is 10 minutes prior to the start, but you'll want to check your schedule on each of the independent sites just to make sure you have it right. But I'd recommend getting into that corral 20 minutes early. And then, therefore, you're standing for 20 minutes waiting for this to go off. And typically, I don't recommend a warm-up before a 26-mile race. You've got 26 miles, and that's plenty on the day. And so, therefore, your first three to four miles should be your warm-up, where you start slower than marathon pace by some determined interval, and then gradually progress down to marathon pace over the first three to four miles, allowing your body to warm up, allowing you to find a rhythm, allowing you to avoid starting too fast, which is the number one pitfall, in my opinion, of any marathon strategy is starting too fast. And so by starting slower, easing in, you are conserving energy for later and getting your body warmed up so that when you get into that marathon-paced rhythm, then you're, you're ready to roll, you're ready to find a groove and... You're ready to do so without forcing it or burning extra energy to get there. And this is so, so important. There's a lot of people that think, if I start too slow, then I'm giving up time that I'll have to make up later, which is absolutely the wrong way to think about it. If you start, it's better to think about the opposite. If you start too fast, then you're burning energy that you won't have later to run what you need to late in the race. So it's really important to start slow, progress down over those first three to four miles in either of these races. Now, then you might ask, well, how much slower? And in my opinion, that varies, that varies significant, not significantly, but it varies based on the runner, based on the rigor with which you're approaching your goal. And I will typically recommend that a, that a more inexperienced marathoner, somebody who isn't as dialed in to a certain pace, start anywhere from 45 seconds to a minute per mile slower in mile one than their target marathon pace. 45 seconds to a minute. And people sometimes look at me and they think, that's crazy. I, you know, I'm not going to give up a minute 
per mile in the first mile, 45 seconds maybe in the second. And and what I'm asking you to do is trust me, you, if you do that, then not only will it ensure that if you make a mistake and end up a little faster than that, that you still won't be burning too much energy, but you're also, again, conserving energy for later. So 45 seconds to a minute per mile slower. And then in that case, working down to marathon pace over the first four miles or so. So you might do a minute slower, then 45 seconds slower, then 30 seconds slower, then 15 seconds slower, then be right at marathon pace by mile five, using four miles for warm up. For that more experienced marathoner who is a little bit more dialed in and who knows how to find a pace and find a rhythm a little bit more easily, then I would recommend starting anywhere from 30 to 40 seconds slower than marathon pace and then working down over the first three miles in 10 to 15 second chunks to your marathon pace so that you're settled in by mile four. And again, some people would say that's too slow or I don't want to give up that much time early. And again, I would say you're not banking time or banking energy. And that energy will be there for you later. And you'll be able to close the race down strongly and finish on plan with your goal time in hand. But if you make that mistake and go too fast too soon, then you will have no chance. You will have lost your race before you started. So it's really, really important that you start slow and then ease into it warm up, as I said, over those first four miles, three to four miles. So now some people would ask, well, what should I be doing about pace groups? Should I settle into a pace group? And and my answer to that, of course, as I've said before in this podcast, is no, for a couple of reasons. One, because they're typically instructed to run even splits, and that means starting out right on pace which means that your body doesn't have that opportunity to warm into the pace. And so if you were to run marathon pace from mile one, it's going to cost you more energy than it would at mile four or five once your body has found that rhythm and kind of warmed into the pace. Additionally, I don't know why anybody would trust a stranger with their goal because you know I've cheered and watched too many races happen over the years where pacers have just messed up gone out too fast on accident, maintained too fast a pace from the beginning, in some cases dropped out of the race because they couldn't handle it. So you just, you don't know who you're getting in, in that pacer and why would you trust them to your race? Why wouldn't you trust yourself? You've trained for this. You're prepared for it. You can run these paces. So just trust yourself. Don't trust someone else who you don't know if they can handle the pace. You don't know how long they can hold it. You don't know if they're good at dialing in quickly. And as I said earlier, not to mention, they're trying to run even splits, which is going to cost you energy early versus this warm-up strategy. Now, a couple of nuances to these opening miles, depending on your race. One being in Chicago You go into a tunnel in the first mile where you're not going to be getting a GPS signal. And even once you come out of that tunnel, you're going to be amongst the tall tall buildings of downtown Chicago. And so you're not going to be getting a GPS signal. So you won't have reliable data on pace from your watch except and until you get to that first mile marker where I would suggest that you manually split your watch to see how fast you're going. And... Then, of course, from there, make your adjustments as needed to stay on plan. In Toronto, there's a slightly different pitfall. You do have similarly tall buildings, and so I would also not plan to rely on your GPS in Toronto. But there's also some downhill from four four miles two and three. And so there may be a temptation there to go a little bit too hard or get greedy on those downhills. And I'm telling you, don't simply ride the wave, enjoy, 
let those downhills just help give you a natural progression down to your target pace. And then you'll get there, but you'll be able to conserve even more energy doing it because of those early downhills. So either way, stay on plan. Start anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute per mile slower than your target pace and then work down to your target pace over the first three to four miles. You don't have to do that in perfect progression, but you want to to ease down as gradually as you can to get to that target pace. The other thing, a part of this to remember is, and I think a lot of people think if I'm going to cut from a 30 second per mile slower to a 20 second per mile slower to 10 seconds per mile slower. There's a thought process that you have to somehow invest energy to make each one of those cut downs work as you progress in these opening miles. And in reality, you don't because what happens is your body warms up. You naturally feel smoother. You're able to kind of find that rhythm your body eases will ease into those faster paces as you go without having without you having to really inject additional energy into each of those gear changes so just be cautious and err on the conservative side each of those shifts again use this as a warm-up and you'll be in perfect shape to close it out later i for one can attest that my, my last two marathon PRs, Houston in 2018 and then Bryan College Station in 2014, both came with exactly this strategy employed. I think Bryan College Station actually started 45 seconds per mile slower in mile one and eventually went on to run a 2.45 high. And then in Houston, I started, I think it was 35 seconds per mile slower in the first mile and then went on to to beat that prior 245 high time by 12 seconds so in both cases I employed the same strategy because the courses in those two races were actually pretty similarly flat if I can do it you can too so that's your warm-up section one now what's section two section two is the middle miles from four to typically 20 or 21 or 5 to 20 or 21 where you're going to just try to dial into that target pace, turn your brain off and make it feel as easy as possible for as long as possible. This is where relaxed running is key. And for this second chunk, basically you're going to be running the same pace per mile the entire time with the exception of, you know, some plus or minus variation around that as we're not, you know, all of us aren't perfect pacers. So you might end up with plus or minus five seconds around your target marathon time during this, this section from mile four to 20 or 21 or five to 20 or 21, depending on how long your warm up takes. But the paces should look the same. And in Chicago, particularly, it's easy to do this because it's pancake flat. For this, for this section, you can really turn your brain off. Just keep clicking off those miles one after the other. In Toronto, it's it's pretty flat as well. There's a few spots where you go up and over overpasses where you see some, some climbing that may cause slightly more variation in your pace per mile. But for the most part, all the miles look the same. It's very flat, and you should be able to find that pace after your warm-up, dial it in, turn your brain off, use those rhythm mantras that I talked about on the last episode, and try to get to mile 20 or 21 as conservatively or and or conserving the most energy as possible. Now, the next question becomes, what is that target pace exactly? For me, I always like to round, have round numbers in my head. So some people who are, for example, trying to break a four-hour marathon might be trying to run the pace for that, which is 9.09 per mile. 
personally, I like to work in round numbers. I think as humans, for whatever reason, it's easier for us to think that way. So if I had somebody that was trying to break four hours, I would have them work down to a 9.05 target pace. So just slightly under that 9.09 target. But again, a round number that allows you to to more easily turn your brain off as you're looking at your splits mile by mile. And so that's one nuance is always round and I ran round down because in that case of that four hour marathoner, you know, 905 and 909, pretty similar, but you're picking up perhaps a few seconds per mile, which in the grand scheme won't necessarily affect you because that's a pretty similar rhythm but might just give you a slightly better opportunity at the end to get to get what you want. So if if you're questioning that exact target steady state pace in the middle, again, would round down to a round number that makes sense, not going more than four seconds, and you'll be perfectly dialed in. So what might be nuances for each of these individual races? And we'll talk about them in turn in this middle section. One would be, well, starting with Chicago, that would be that there are some sections of the course that have a decent number of turns. And so I would be aware of those turns and do your best to navigate them efficiently. Now, in Chicago, early on, the turns in those first few miles are really tight and really often crowded with people and so personally in those situations I like to recommend not trying to too religiously hit the tangents but kind of rounding the curve staying more in the middle of the crowd so as not to get boxed in because sometimes you can get boxed in in a crowd on the inside of the turn as the race progresses you should be able to more easily navigate the turns and try to really hit those tangents and so I would be aware of those in Chicago particularly in certain sections where you do find more turns. I would also be aware of the crowds because Chicago is great for its crowds and that can bring you a lot of great positive energy at certain points where you might just run through these tunnels of screams. And while that provides adrenaline and can be a great way to enjoy the race and I would certainly enjoy those sections and smile through them, I would just be careful that you don't get so excited that you end up picking up your pace through those sections. I've seen that happen before with athletes where they kind of got too excited and ended up, you know, going too fast because of the cheers. And then suddenly they find themselves 10 or 15 seconds faster than their target pace in that second section. And then suddenly they decide to hold that and it ultimately cost them at the end because they just didn't control themselves through some of those particularly loud spots. Now, let's talk a little bit about Toronto. There's a couple sections in this middle section, and you'll be able to see them on the course map where you might be, you're not directly on the lake, but you're close to the lake. And, and so you're right there on the waterfront, And depending on the weather for the day, it can be windy on the waterfront, depending on which way the wind is coming from and what part of the course you're at. So for that, for those doing Toronto, I would just be aware of their weather conditions and which direction the wind might be coming from and the strength of the wind so that when you are in those lakefront sections, you can have a plan to address it. And hopefully it'll be a our backs mostly as we'll be going primarily west to east on the waterfront sections. But if that's true, then that'll be an advantage that maybe you don't realize in the moment. But if, if you do have sections of the lake front area where the wind is in your face, you want to plan accordingly, hopefully duck into the crowd of runners in front of you and create a little bit of a drafting opportunity because Just like in cycling, even though the advantage is more in cycling, drafting also works for runners. So know your areas of the course, know your wind direction in Toronto and try to plan accordingly to, you know, to tuck in if you can during those windy sections. Also with Toronto, there's a couple of 
sections again where I mentioned you have some overpasses and and so that's something else to watch and make sure that when you do hit those overpasses you're not you know pressing too much because basically anytime you go up and over a hill in this race even if it's a subtle hill you just don't want you just don't want to waste a lot of energy doing it so if if it happens that you hit one of those overpasses don't press conserve energy you'll have plenty of flat and faster ground afterwards to to do what you need to do and get that time back for the for the Toronto Marathon you go over an overpass or you go kind of up and around an overpass around 26k which is about mile 15 and then in the same section coming back close to 39k which is about mile 24 as well and so there's a couple sections there just to be aware of and conserve energy on those 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 overpasses those little mini hills because you'll have plenty of chance to get it back at another time so those are some course nuances the other thing i want to talk about in this second section which is again pretty consistent you know you should be able to turn your brain off use those rhythm mantras kind of go to sleep so to speak and just clock or click off mile after mile of consistent paces some people will say well, you know, what if I feel good at mile 15 or what if I feel good at mile 18? Can I pick it up a little bit sooner? And the answer I say to that is no, absolutely not. Follow your plan, stick to it no matter what happens, no matter how you feel. I've heard some people say, well, I felt good at mile 15 and picked it up well inevitably those are famous last words for somebody who ends up bonking bonking later so yes you might feel good at mile 15 but frankly you should feel good at mile 15 if everything's going to plan you will feel good at mile 15 and avoid the temptation to make a gear change and just continue to wait till that designated point in your plan where you are going to pick it up now some people might also say they might also want to build in a gear change sometime around 15 or 18 and think, well, I'll hit my target pace, but if that, feel good, if that feels good, then I'll kind of progress maybe 10 or 20 seconds per mile at mile 15 or 18, and then I'll progress again after mile 20. And I'm here to tell you, don't be tempted to do that. I just mentioned some reasons, but I also think that in a marathon, it's hard to make subtle gear changes once you dialed into a certain pace. So if you're running 9.05 in the case of that 4-hour marathoner, it's really difficult to make a subtle gear change at mile 15 to go from, say, 9.05 to 8.55 without costing a bunch of energy and or without overdoing it a little bit and suddenly finding yourself running 8.45s. And so it just creates risk. And I don't want you to take any risks until after 20 or 21 when it's time to actually start progressing towards your clothes, when it's time to start emptying the tank. So resist that temptation to build that into your plan. You know, then the other question to ask in this section is, at what point do I make that move, that progression to start to pick it up? You know, and I think that can happen as early as mile 20. I wouldn't pick it up before mile 20, but for some people, I will have them wait until 21 or 22 until they check in on themselves and decide to make a progression to the finish. How do you determine what that is for you? I think there's a few factors to consider. One would be experience. I think that more experienced marathoner could potentially have a a progression from further out. I think there's another question of how much risk you're willing to take with this result. How aggressive do you want to be? And for that person who's comfortable with a more aggressive plan, then perhaps starting their finish at mile 20 would make more sense versus somebody who wants to take fewer risks. You might decide to save your progression until mile 22 or 21. 
either way, at some point, it'll be time to get into that last gear, that last move, and then it's the final, the final chunk, that final close, where you go from hitting your target marathon pace and hopefully turning your brain off to time you know to time to progress to the finish and close this thing out with everything you have and for that there is some variation in the plan based on when you start your close but in general my general advice for people is to close things down in in two mile chunks so if you start at mile 20 or 20 you know you get through mile 20 with your target marathon pace in hand then i would say from there, progress in two-mile chunks. Cut down 10 seconds or mile for 21 and 22. Check in on yourself after that. And if everything's good, cut down another 10 seconds a mile for 23 and 24. And then, of course, once you get to those final two miles, in a lot of ways, are all, all bets are off. So close as, you hard, close as hard as you can with whatever you have left at that point. But the main lesson here is that when you're making that progression to the finish, don't overdo it. You want to make sure that you're doing it in controlled chunks, giving giving yourself an opportunity to find that new gear, find a new rhythm there, and then hold it, and then check in on yourself to see how how, how things are going, and then progress again if it's there. Because, again, I've seen it happen other ways, too, where... Somebody will get to that progression and maybe they'll do it too rapidly and they'll they'll cut down in a 30 second per mile chunk at mile 21 or 22, in which case it's going to get really difficult at the end if you do it that way and in, in, in such a, a rapid progression. So I would just be really careful not to do that. Keep it controlled. Do it in small chunks check in at each point on how you're feeling and then keep progressing if it's still there for Chicago let's talk about a couple of notes and nuance you do have let's say some of the more boring sections of the course late in the race so that's just something to be aware of there may be sections where you kind of get a little bit bored I think also late in the race in Chicago that sun can come out and be particularly challenging late in the race and and you get a little bit more exposure with less shade late in the race in certain sections and so just be cognizant of that depending on the weather do everything you can to stay cool and or stay engaged as it as as it were with the mental side and then of course you'll also know that there's only one quote-unquote hill on the course in Chicago and it comes in that 25th mile just before mile 26 and and it's not really a hill to speak of if you were just out on an easy run on a short run day but at the end of the Chicago Marathon I promise you you'll notice it and be a little bit unhappy about it and so know where that is and just be ready to attack it at that point because by the time you get to that little hill in in air quotes you'll be really close to the finish and just really minutes from turning into that final finishing straight and so it's at that point you can progress and or push with everything that you've got and that hill will pass quickly and then you'll be on to the finishing straight shortly after so just know those things and and be ready to attack at the end. In Toronto, you have a nice run in to the finish. It's pretty much straight shot once you get to this section of the of the plan. Straight shot back into downtown and then you take a right turn and progress towards the finish once you get back into downtown. And again, this race is pretty flat except for a little overpasses except for a few overpass passes and then when you get to the end we take that right turn to head up to the capital where you finish this race there is a subtle climb over that final 2k or so 
that final mile it's it's nothing really major but it is a subtle climb as you move up to the finish and so that's just something to be aware of especially those who train in Austin it won't be something you really notice too much perhaps but it is there it's it's maybe more of a false flat if you could think of it that way so just be aware of that once you make that right turn with 2k to go that it is a slight incline from there and just mentally be prepared that you're going to be pushing it all out at that point and I want you to go go get it go get that finish line now of course as I've mentioned before I want you to also put your fight mantras to work in this final section this final four to six miles depending on how you decide to chunk it up put those fight mantras to work and you may even think about using a different mantra for each different chunk of your clothes depending on how you decide to chunk it up but this is where you you get to run into the glory of, of finishing with your goal in hand and so just as I mentioned in the last podcast don't hesitate to do the work to prepare for how you're going to fight how you're going to get your mind right in these closing miles now a lot of people will say Chris how in the world will I be able to close run fast at the end of a marathon that's never worked for me and now I would love to chat with you about that because usually there's always reasons that hasn't worked for people most of the time, the reasons it, the reason is because they started way too fast in their race. There could be other reasons, such as perhaps not being as fully prepared in training as they should have been for, for a certain goal. But here's the key message. I've coached literally at this point thousands of athletes to, you know, thousands of marathons. And this absolutely works. You have to trust this plan because it's the only way, in my opinion, it's the only way to effectively get your goal. If you start too fast, if you try to bank time, then what you'll do is burn energy that you'll be wanting in this final section, in in these final four to six miles. So just don't do that. I need you to be patient early, start smart and finish strong because that is the way epic marathons are run if you look at the marathons at the elite level if you look at Kipchoge's world record he finished by running a really fast final 5k to run a big negative split to get the world record if you look at Kinesia Bekele's run in Berlin just two weekends ago he did it by closing fast in the final 5K, running a negative split, meaning the second half of his race was faster than the first half. Again, Kipchoge the same way. That is the way fast marathons are run because you have the energy at the end when everything gets hard to push as hard as you can and still hit those paces. So you just have to trust it. And for some of you who have said that I've never been able to finish strong. Look back at those races. Ask yourself the question, did you start too fast? Maybe you have all the evidence you need from prior performances that it doesn't work to do it the other way. So take those lessons and this, for this race, for this one day, turn over a new leaf, try something different, and let's see how it goes. Because I can tell you, this has worked for me personally. All of my marathon PRs have been negative splits. It's worked for thousands of athletes I've coached and it will work for you too if you just trust it. So there's your plan. Three chunks. Well, first chunk is the warm up. The first three to four miles where you start anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute per mile slower than target pace and work down to target pace progressing gradually over those three to four miles. Second chunk from mile four or five until miles 20 to 22. Find your rhythm in the middle. Get to that target marathon pace and hold it for as long as you can by burning as little energy as possible. 
and prepare yourself for the end, which is the final four to six miles where you're going to progress to the finish and gradually empty the tank through the end. And this will work at Chicago. It'll work at Toronto. So just go do it and you will have success. Now, as we wrap it up, I want to talk about a couple of other things that I always talk about around marathon race strategy time. And we'll kind of just go through in these in a little bit of a random order. One would be figure out how you're going to track your paces and your watch and use your watch. This is really important. Not every, not the, the same strategy doesn't work for everybody, but you need to have a plan. How are you going to use your, your Garmin or your Sunto or whatever smartwatch you want to use? How are you going to use it? Personally, I prefer turning off the auto lap, sometimes even turning off the GPS. In the case of a Chicago marathon, I would even turn off the GPS because it's so unreliable amidst those buildings. And then manually split the laps at each mile marker in the case of Chicago or K marker in the case of Toronto. Again, for the Americans who are listening, you won't necessarily have mile markers in Toronto, so you shouldn't count on them. I want you to convert your pace per mile targets to a K, a per K target or K per mile target so that you can translate your plan accordingly and split that watch at every K if you need to and and know whether you're going to be on track or on plan. So that, but that's important. How are you going to use your watch? And again, personally, I'll manually split and then, and then just look at those split each splits each time and execute my plan based on that. Other people might choose to keep the auto lap on and just know that it may be a little bit off. But again, if you're going to do that, just have your eyes wide open to the fact that your distance measurement is going to be wrong, especially in those first miles in Toronto and Chicago. And therefore, you might get an auto lap that happens at a really random time, in which case you might get confused or frustrated. And so just know if that's going to be your approach because perhaps you want it to work for you later in the race. Fine, but just know that and go eyes go eyes wide open into whatever strategy you're going to use. So figure that out. Second thing, as we conclude, I want to talk about is nutrition planning. Hydration planning. Have a plan, stick to it, period. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the famous last words, I skipped a gel because I felt good. And then had those words come back to haunt somebody in a race. I've had a, I've had veteran marathons tell me that. Ver- veteran marathoners tell me that. So don't do it. Have your plan. Stick to it. Barring some maybe crazy stomach reaction to whatever you're eating. Have your plan for nutrition. Stick to it no matter what. Follow the letter of your own law. And I like to tell people to write it down. And for those that are taking gels or other some other, some other sugar supplement, have it in either minutes, have a plan in minutes or have a plan in miles or Ks and stick to it. Write it down and stick to it. Hydration-wise, Again, have a plan and stick to it. Personally, I prefer staying ahead of hydration, getting it early and often, and I will, starting at the second water stop because the first is crazy, I will alternate between Gatorade and water every other water stop on a normal temperature day so that I can stay ahead of hydration. And then later in the race, my plan probably after mile 20 or 21 would be to shift more towards a drink to thirst mentality where I may or may not grab water or Gatorade later in the race. just depends at that point on how I feel. But my belief as a coach is that if you stay ahead of it, then you'll have the option to be a little bit more flexible later. 
So that's something else to consider, of course. Another thing, just to reiterate my discussion topic from last week, episode 50, the mental side. Don't neglect your mental homework. If you haven't listened to episode 150, I would highly encourage you to give eight tips in there on how to bring your best mental game to the table. Prepare for it. You've done all the physical training. Make sure you do the mental prep so that you come with your A game on race day. And then, you know, additionally, look at the logistics of the start. Look at the logistics of your race weekend. Where are you going to eat on Friday and Saturday nights? How are you going to get to the start line? What time are you going to get to the start line? What does the map of the start line look like? So you know where the gear drop is versus the porta potties versus where your corral will be. So that you know all of those details. And even if you haven't been there, you know the layout and are leaving as little chance, little to chance as possible. Think about your your throwaway clothing that you might be wearing in the corral. So if it's cool so that you stay warm while you're just standing there and then you'll toss that at the start line. Just think about all of those logistics. Your job, well, I don't want you to be obsessive. Your job is to control everything you can to the extent that you can control it because there there will be plenty on race day that is out of your control. And so limit, limit those things that are out of your control. If you do that, you'll be in good shape when the gun goes off because then all you'll have to do is focus on executing that plan that we talked about. So there you go. A very straightforward plan for either Chicago or Toronto. Yes, it's simple to talk about. No, it's not necessarily simple to execute, but there's certainly no reason to make it more complicated. So with that, I'm going to wrap this one up. Wish you all good luck for those that are racing Chicago this coming weekend or Toronto in a couple weeks. Again, if you're listening to this and you're going to be in Toronto, then shoot me an email, chris at roadrunning.com, and I'll let you know about our activities happening in Toronto. I'll be leading a pre-race prep talk on Saturday at 2 o'clock, and then we'll have a post-race party afterwards as well. would love to have you stop by if you're interested in saying hello to me and our group. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Good luck to all of those racing. You can, of course, check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.